This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Mathieu Ricard. Mathieu Ricard is a Buddhist monk and has authored several books, including Altruism, The Power of Compassion to Change Yourself and the World. He's a major participant in the research collaboration between cognitive scientists and Buddhist practitioners, spearheaded by the Dalai Lama and the Mind and Life Institute. Matthew Ricard will be a featured presenter at an upcoming Living a Life of Presence conference. This is a four-day event to benefit the Eckhart Tolle Foundation, and it will be taking place November 8th through the 11th in Huntington Beach, California. If you're interested in more information about Living a Life of Presence, this four-day event, please come visit us at SoundsTrue.com. With Sounds True, Matthew Ricard has also co-written a new book along with Christophe André and Alexandre Jolien, a French best-selling book that has now been translated into the English language called In Search of Wisdom, a monk, a philosopher, and a psychiatrist on what matters most. In this book, they share their views on how we uncover our deepest aspirations in life, the nature of the ego, living with the full range of human emotion, the art of listening, the origin of suffering, true freedom, and much more. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mathieu and I spoke about a revolution of altruism, how we can clarify our motivation in each situation we find ourselves in and every project we begin, and how it's possible to put at the forefront of our lives our desire to be of benefit to others, and how doing so changes us and our world. We also talked about the difference between empathy and compassion, and the science that shows how an empathic response versus a compassionate response leads to different areas of brain change and how empathy can lead quickly to empathic distress, whereas compassion can lead to courage and resilience. And finally, I spoke with Matthew Ricard about what it means to be a high-fidelity person and to live with no regrets. Here's a very inspiring conversation with Matthew Ricard. It is a great joy and honor to be speaking with you today, Matthew. Tell us a little bit where you are right now as we're talking. Well, I just returned from my hermitage in Nepal, facing the Himalayas, and right now I'm in the south of France in a beautiful, quiet countryside, attending to my dear mother, who is turning 95. 
and also is a Buddhist nun. Uh-huh. So that's what I am now. Well, good. You'll bring some of that Himalayan sparkle, I'm sure, and so. brilliance to our conversation. You have created a new book called In Search of Wisdom with two friends and colleagues of yours. And I wonder here at the very beginning of our conversation if you can introduce to our listeners how this book project came into being and who these two friends and colleagues are. So one of them, Christophe André, is a very well-known and loved uh, psychologist and psychiatrist. Is probably the most best-selling authors in psychology, but he's basically a clinician. He, he works with phobia, with all kinds of things, and is a very well-known author. So I met him, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago. I wrote a book on happiness, which the French intellectual don't like very much, happiness. They, they speak about the dirty works of happiness. Mm-hmm. And he also had written a book on happiness, by the way. So we met on the... Uh, while doing some interviews for a TV channel, and we became very close friends. And then he was friends with a remarkable person, Alexandre Jolien, who is a Swiss handicapped philosopher. So he was for 17 years, uh, Alexandre, in an institution uh, for handicapped people and very not so well looked after. And then uh, when he, he turned about 18, a Jesuit priest found he was very smart, Start with teaching philosophy, and within a few years, he graduated at the Lausanne University in philosophy. And so, um, when I met him, I found he was such a moving, insightful person, even though he's sometimes difficult to speak. But when he speaks, he speaks both with his knowledge of philosophy and with his guts, because he went to so much hardship in life, and he went to so, he has so many stories to tell that if you want to have a dialogue, he always has an incredibly moving story to start reflecting upon the theme that is important for life. So we knew each other then for a number of years, and especially Alexandre, the philosopher, wanted us to get together in a quiet place as true, real friends, and then discuss an important issue. And so in France, because we are three bestseller authors, I think, uh, some something they recently in the French magazine looked at the 20 most sold authors in nonfiction, and we were all within the first five or six. <laughs> so they thought it was just you know a kind of making three like star become doing a blockbuster, but they, uh, for the just for you know making another best-selling books. But in fact, we are two friends in real life, and it's just for the joy of uh, discussing. We were not sure you know, what the book would be, and so it was very much welcome in France. I think for 2016, in fiction, all throughout the year, it was number one bestseller. But that shows simply that when it is a genuine dialogue, uh, then it is different than something that is a little bit fabricated. Mm-hmm. Now, several of your books have come from dialogues that you've had. And I wonder, in an age now where it's often difficult for people to take other people's perspective, what you feel the value of dialogue is and how people can engage in more thoughtful dialogue with people who perhaps have opposing views. Well, you know, I, I cannot but think of what uh, the Dalai Lama says. He says the 20th, 20th, 20th century was the 
the century of bloodshed. You know, 100 million people died in two world war. And he said he hopes, which is unfortunately not yet completely fully happening, <laughs> that the 21st century will be the century of dialogue. Because basically, you know, uh, peace is not just the absence of war, it's an active uh, uh, sort of move towards understanding each other, putting each other's shoes, exchanging ideas, and deepening each other's perspective. So now, from, in my case, it was sort of uh, accidental that I did those dialogues. The first book with my father, the monk and philosopher, a publisher proposed that. I was totally unknown, sitting in the Himalayas for 25 years, living on a shoestring, and I was quite surprised that he accepted to do this dialogue, and then the, somehow it was the beginning of my either travel or opportunity to engage again with the world. And then I did dialogue with an astrophysicist. Again, it was a request from him. So it just happened when you meet wonderful people in life. And I think in the case of this one, what's remarkable is we certainly bring quite different perspective. The, you know, the, the person who is a physician, who takes care of, of people who suffer day to day, of patients, and then the, the philosopher who himself went through so much hardship in life, and myself who chose a you know, more contemplative life and also running humanitarian projects now, almost 200 of them. But, you know, it was not just challenging into having very, very different views on things which are almost incompatible. It was more coming from different angles, but discovering each other depth of thought. And so there was not the slightest, even was sometimes we disagreed, but it was we never had any sort of conflictual situation when you think, you think that this person is also <laughs> a dog running around. I mean, I'm outside in the, in the forest. That's beautiful. So no worries. When there is, you know, when people really don't, don't agree in depth on, on worldview, and then they have somehow to, to manage something. But, of course, you can, but it's not very inspiring and not very pleasant. Now, in, in the very beginning of the book, In Search of Wisdom, you talk about the importance of clarifying our motivation, clarifying our motivation about anything, including a project like dialoguing yes. together for nine yes. days. So can you talk more about this and what it means for someone to clarify their motivation about whatever project they might be taking on? Well, it was important. You know, when I, I did the first dialogue with my father, I had no idea where this would lead me, so I came back to the scene in the West. But then, as the book keeps on being successful, when there's an opportunity or a reason to write something, then you have to ask yourself, okay, this book has been you know, very much welcome in, 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 by the public, so I'm trying to do another book just to you know, sell a lot of books? Or I'm really trying to do something that could be useful. And I remember when I did the book on happiness, I was sitting alone in my hermitage. I said, okay, is that going to be useful to others? Otherwise, what's the point? So precisely because we were sort of three well-known authors in France, so we needed uh, to eliminate that perspective and say, okay, now all gathering together, of course we'll enjoy tremendously being 10 days with each other, but basically we have to generate the attitude that this is a service to society, a service to humanity, a service to anyone, and even if it's useful to one person, it's worth doing. And so the idea is what we are starting now, make the profound aspiration 
may it be dedicated to the welfare of others, if possible to the greater number, and if possible for the long term. So that's, I think, we need to, and we did spend five, ten minutes uh, silently trying to check our motivation to see if we were really uh, inspired by this compassionate and benevolent attitude. So otherwise, it will be sort of crooked motivation and self-centered one. Mm-hmm. This theme, Matthew, of clarifying our motivation and really centering in altruism is something that runs throughout the book In Search of Wisdom. And really, as I was preparing for this conversation and reading many of the interviews you've granted recently, you're emphasizing that what we need in our world right now is a revolution of altruism. And (laughs) I I noticed as I was reflecting on that more and more and, and your TED Talk, which focuses on altruism, I started seeing in myself ways that I am altruistically motivated, and I felt good about that. But then I started seeing in myself ways that I'm not, ways that I'm really focused in my life around personal economic security, just to say it bluntly. I want to make sure that I have retirement funds, things like that. And I wonder if you can address that, how in our age, even people of good heart find themselves spending a lot of time and energy on their own economic security? Well, to start with, uh, you know, to wish good for oneself, to wish to, to gather all the conditions that allows one to, to thrive, to be in good health, to, to live the full span of one's life, and to, you know, fulfill one's deepest aspiration in life. So to wish good for oneself it's nothing to do with selfishness. That's a legitimate aspiration. We are one of the billions of sentient beings who don't wake up in the morning thinking, may I suffer the whole day and possibly my whole life. We want some kind of fulfillment, and it's legitimate to pursue that. Selfishness is when you do that with total disregard to others' well-being. That means you don't care a damn. Or, even worse, that you instrumentalize others to the for your own interest, and then even sometimes at the cost of suffering for others. So that's selfishness. So now, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lose-lose situation, because you make, if you think me, me, me all day long, usually you feel miserable because it's very stuffy and narrow in that bubble of self, self-centeredness. And then you make everyone's life miserable because you will behave in ways that are very sort of unconsiderate, unkind, uh, you know, with a very cold, shrunk heart. So, <laughs> on a personal level, it's a lose-lose situation. Now, on a personal level, again, it has been shown that when we generate benevolence, altruistic love, compassion, though the work I've done with neuroscientists shown that this is the state of mind that activates also the areas of the brain uh, which have also connected with well-being in the strongest possible way. So, that's why... Uh, Barbara Fredrickson, for instance, one of the pioneers of positive psychology, said that love is the supreme emotion. So for you, it's very fulfilling. And of course, because it's intended to the benefit of others, then others will see it that way. So it's a win-win situation. So that's for the personal experience. Now, if you look more at the global picture, the situation of the world, situation of humanity, situation of 8 million other species who are co-citizens on this earth, Selfishness will not do the job, you know, especially at a time 
where we have immense power for the first time in our history of humankind. You know, 12,000 years ago, we were 5 million people on Earth. No big deal, whatever we could do, and we had tools that we hold in our hands. Now those tools are million-fold more powerful. They are in the hands of groups and nations, so they can do immense good or immense damage. And if the, we don't match that with the same magnitude of care, then we sort of not only doomed, but we go to the, what we call the sixth extinction of species on Earth, all kinds of you know, not very not good news. So, again, selfishness would not do the job. You know, I, I'm a fan of Groucho Marx. That's my version of Marxism. And Groucho said, why should I care for a future generation? What did they do for me? So if we think like that, and unfortunately quite a few people these days, even in high positions of government, think that way, then of course there's no environment problem. We won't be there, so who cares? You know? But if you think of the, the kind of schizophrenic dialogue between uh, financier, economists, politicians, social workers, and scientists who, who study the environment. One of the, the economists speaks of the very short term. The people who deal with the quality of life in the nation, like the gross national happiness, they speak of a generation, a lifespan. And then the environmental scientists speak of many generations to come. So they don't speak on the same time frame. So, of course, selfishness, again, will not make them sit at the same table and work for a better world. And I believe that most people do want a better world. I mean, most of the time, most of the 7 billion human beings just behave decently toward each other. It's the exception that's the barbaric exception that attracts our attention. So the banality of goodness is there. So they need a common concept to sit at the same table, same table and try to build a better world. And the only concept that works is having more consideration for others. That leads to a caring economics, to more social justice, less inequality, and care for future generations. So sorry for going on, but just to show that altruism is not a kind of, you know, idealistic, naive, utopian idea. It's the most pragmatic concept to answer the challenges of the 21st century. Okay, I, I want to understand more of its practical applications when you talk about something like a caring economics. Because as I mentioned, in my own sort of self-inventory, I feel like sometimes I'm caught in a system that doesn't support my altruism. It supports my selfishness. Well, caring economics uh, is a general uh, sort of way of seeing economics which deal with two things that the homo economicus, that means just maximizing personal preference and interest, cannot deal with. One is poverty in the midst of plenty. Someone who tries to maximize their immediate interest doesn't care for poverty in the midst of plenty. You better, you know, uh, order T-shirts from Bangladesh and, and make people work for nothing so that you can make more profit. That's one thing. So you need to step out of this limitation and add to the voice of reason the voice of care, caring for others. The second thing that the normal economists cannot deal with is the, the idea of the common goods. I mean, like environment, freedom, democracy, uh, you know, the state of the atmosphere of the ocean, public parks. I mean, anything that, has, that is owned in common and that you could enjoy without doing anything as a free rider. So now, if we want to work that, we again have to step out of our immediate reward of maximizing personal interest, and that's the only way. 
So now, in terms of, of oneself as an individual, you know, there's much more that we can do. <laughs> Even we have to try to make ends meet at the end of the month. I mean, there's so many things, if we look in our life, that sometimes are not quite necessary, <laughs> for which we do spend quite a lot of money. And I love the idea, you know, the recent book of Peter Singer, The Most Good You Can Do, where you can see examples, it's called effective altruism, of people who have a quite a simple walk of life, but they decided that they don't need all these superfluous things. They don't need two cars. They don't need this and that. And they could set aside some amount of money to do maximum good with that amount according to the level of their resources, maybe save a few lives somewhere in the world, and or give back eyesight to you know, a few kids somewhere. And so there's always something we can do, or we can volunteer you know, for taking care of elderly people instead of, I don't know, to go into a, some sport event or to the movies. So there's, if we have that in heart, it's not a sacrifice. You know, I don't like this idea of altruism should go with a sacrifice, because if you do that with joy, it's so much more a reward than spending your time in a supermarket or going to a movie. There's really much, much, so much more meaning. It's so much more fulfilling to do so. <laughs> so there's no sacrifice at all. It may look like that to others, but for you, it's a great joy and accomplishment. Now, Matthew, can you make more explicit for our listeners the connection between compassion meditation and specifically what you mean by that, the actual practice, and how that affects our altruistic motivation? If I may add something for the first for more question. You know, when I left at 26 Pasteur Institute with just a few thousand dollars in my pocket for my work, yeah. I, I had no idea where I was going to in life. I, I start I spent time with my teachers for twenty five years I didn't come back. I lived maybe on fifty hundred dollars a month in a small hermitage. So happily so. But you know, I survived very well. And no problem. And when, when money started to come my way because of the books and the because they were bestsellers, I thought, I don't need that. I'm not going to buy a swimming pool or a Ferrari car. So I started a foundation. Today, that foundation grew, and we are helping 300,000 people in India, Nepal, and Tibet on health, education, and social services. So you see, even starting from very little, somehow it happened. Okay, so now to come back to compassion meditation. Now, meditation is really to train a skill for which you have a potential, but which is dormant un- unless you train it. And so that's, we know that, because we know that we, do, we are not born knowing how to read and write or play chess or solve mathematical equations. We didn't know how to play tennis and all that. So most of this we learned. And that we are happy with that. We, have, we see no problem with that. But it's, I find quite strange that when it comes to fundamental human qualities, which are in fact more important than playing tennis or piano or whatever, like loving kindness, co- compassion, inner freedom, emotional balance. We somehow say, either we think that, you know, I'm born like that, that's what, that's what the way I am, there's nothing much I can do, or we don't even consider the fact that, like any other skill, they could be enhanced by training. So compassion meditation is nothing more than, you know, doing for 10, 20 50 minutes or one hour, whatever, something that we do often in our life, which is say, imagine when you feel about a dear child or someone very beloved to you, 
you feel this unconditional love to that person. You don't have to force yourself. You just flow. You just wish that child, that may that child be happy, prosper in life, be spare, hardship, fulfill his or her aspiration in life. Not, nothing but good wishes. Fill your mental landscape. But usually we think that for a few minutes, then something happens. You know, the child goes, or we, we get up, or whatever. We don't have the habit to sit, bring that to our mind, and then nurture it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Nurturing, I mean bringing that to its full bloom in our mental landscape. Then if we are distracted, come back to it. If it declines, you revive it. If you, so, so to correct, to, to modulate and monitor the quality, intensity, vividness of that altruistic love, so if you stay with it, say 20 minutes a day, we know from personal experience, that's 2,000 years of contemplative science, and today, neuroscientists will tell you that anyone who does something new regularly, day after day, very soon, within a month, the person's brain will change uh, structurally and functionally. So we will become a different person as we train into something. So that's as simple as that. Simply, we need to do it. Just like playing the piano, you need to play the piano. Now, one of the things that I discovered in the book In Search of Wisdom is that you make a, a big distinction between practicing the kind of meditation you just described, compassion meditation, and empathizing with suffering and feeling the suffering. And, you know, I, I read that you really discovered this in a profound way also when you were being tested in a brain scanner and you were asked yes. to come forward with an empathic response and they tested you. Yes. And then, uh, can you explain that experience to our listeners? Yeah, you know, I was not so familiar with the term empathy. There's no real immediate word in Tibetan and somehow... Uh, I was asked, I remember Paul Ekman, one of the great psychologists, no, when you feel compassion, you need to suffer with the person or not? And I was a bit puzzled because sometimes yes, sometimes not. So it wasn't clear until I collaborated with Tanya Singer. She's a German neuroscientist. She's the head of the Max Planck Institute for Cognitive Science in Leipzig. And she, we could say, in neuroscience, one of the world specialists on empathy. So I went to her lab because I, I started becoming friends with her, and she put me in the scanner. You know, I've been a flying guinea pig for many neuroscientists over the years now. And uh, well, she, she thought I was going to do empathy, but I was practicing compassion. So it was what we call real-time fMRI. It's a particular technique when you can see immediately the areas of the brain which are activated. You don't have to wait for weeks of analysis. And after 10 minutes, she, me, she told me to the mic, what are you doing? Uh, we don't see the, what we, not the areas of the brain which are normally activated during empathy. So I said, well, I'm doing compassion. He said, okay, well, we have to talk, she said. So we, I came out of the scanner, and we did talk. And she said, well, can you just do only empathy? So I mean, resonate again and again and again with the suffering of other people. So I try. I said, okay, I can try that. He said, don't bring your compassion. <laughs> so I visualized some you know, very, uh, very poignant case of suffering I'd been witnessing, you know, in our human project. There was some earthquake in Tibet, so people caught under the rubble. 
I visualize all kinds of intense suffering and just, you know, this empathic resonance, emotional resonance, and cognitive resonance with the suffering. And no wonder within, uh, you know, 40 minutes of being in fMRI doing that, alternating neutral state with empathic state, I felt in a complete empathic distress, like complete burnout. So then she said, now we can have a break or you could move to your compassion meditation. <laughs> I said, okay, please let me move because I feel very sort of, in, sort of difficult inside, sort of overwhelmed by this empathic distress. So when I shifted to this, you know, compassion is basically unconditional love applied to the suffering of others. It was like opening a dam, completely different, embracing that suffering with so much love, every atom of suffering permeated with atom of love. And then it was such a wholesome, constructive uh, state of mind, filled with courage instead of you know, being overwhelmed with uh, distress. It was so different. And in the brain, of course, it was very different set of areas of the brain that were activated. So then Tanya uh, did more study with more subjects, and then we published some papers saying there's no compassion fatigue, there's empathy fatigue. And if you just do stand-alone empathy, you go straight to burnout, while compassion, which is this strong altruistic love, is the antidote to burnout. So the idea came also, and she started something called the Resource Project, to teach that to caregivers, to nurses, to social workers who very often fall into burnout and this empathic fatigue, and so, so that they have a tool now instead of just trying to blunt their emotion or burning out. So now this alternative is so much better. You know, you react with compassion that builds up your courage, that builds up your resilience. So that was a very interesting discovery even for me. Uh, while you know, collaborating with the scientists. So we did a few scientific papers, and Tanya is continuing to study that, and I think it's quite important for the world of caregivers. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. It seems so important, Matthew, to me today, especially as people become more and more aware of suffering in different parts of the world through news media and the web. And it's easy to develop empathy fatigue just by reading the news. If you're empathizing with the suffering, whether it's the suffering of animals or species being destroyed, all kinds of suffering. So how, just for example, when somebody's experiencing their news feed, could they respond with compassion such that they don't have the same kind of burnout? Well, compassion, again, builds up your resilience. It builds up your courage. The Lama speaks of compassionate courage. Because you see, if you are a doctor on the battlefield, if the first time you encounter uh, someone, who, someone who is wounded and you start crying, 
and fall down, you know, completely sobbing. And what's the use? <laughs> you, you must better, you know, more, the more there are people wounded, the more your courage and determination, and you do something to relieve their suffering, so you're uplifted by that compassion that you put in action. So I think that I, I met so many nurses also who tell me, you know, I feel a great joy to take care of my patients, even those who suffer a lot. But I don't dare to tell that to my colleague because they might sort of tease me. But I thought that's the right thing, you know, to feel this great joy of holding someone's hand who is dying and giving much love to that person. Imagine a mother, you know, who, whose child is in a very difficult health situation and she can't stand it. So she's pacing in the corridor while the child is alone inside the room of the hospital. So much better if the mother just sit by the child and with complete love, you know, be with the child. It's so much better for the child and for the mother. So this can be cultivated by completely ordinary people. You don't have to spend years in the Himalaya. And that's what Tanya Singharp is doing. She did a longitudinal study with 150 subjects over nine months. And she saw this incredible difference in those who did uh, three months of loving-kindness meditation compared to three months of mindfulness, just mindfulness meditation, and three months of perspective-taking meditation. And those who did the loving-kindness, they were so much more prosocially acting, uh, so much more resilient when facing the other suffering. And I remember, you know, when I did the book, A Plea for the Animals, that I showed some disturbing images about, you know, the way we treat animals in the slaughterhouse, and, and the, I asked the public, is it okay to show those images? And someone said, I love animals, I can't look at that. I said, well, you better look, and then do something, instead of, you know, looking away and sort of shrinking inside. So if you get that determination, that courage, it's so much better to relieve suffering. Otherwise, you see, basically, empathy distress is the effect that other suffering has on you. It's, it's self-oriented. Compassion is others-oriented, so you sort of disappear from the picture. Everything is oriented towards relieving the suffering of others. So therefore, why should you burn out? Very helpful. I think a very, very important point. Now, I'm curious, Matthew, what you think about practicing self-compassion when you find yourself suffering from something or other. Yes, yeah, so I was not so familiar with that. In the beginning, you know, we don't have... Uh, such a technical way of meditating in the East. So in the beginning, I was a little bit suspicious. I thought, hey, hey, here, again, you know, the narcissistic, mm-hmm. individualistic Western people are sort of hijacking compassion to, to think about themselves only. But then I was wrong. And when I met Paul, clinicians like Paul Gilbert and Christine Neff, and I realized that it was completely different, that actually people who have this, uh, you know, practice self-harm, and I was shocked to know that, I don't know in the U.S., but in, in the Europe, there's about, I think it's 15% of uh, teenagers do self-harm, but seriously, you know, cutting their, themselves and inflicting wounds. So this kind of uh, very sad situation is pretty common, more than what we think. So now... These people probably were denied happiness when they were young, do some abuse or, the, or contempt from their uh, closed one. So they don't even see the possibility of happiness. So to think of happiness for them is even almost 
increasing their suffering because it's something that they feel denied to experience. So first of all, you need to bring them the mere idea, yes, deep within. If I could, I would prefer to be happy than just cutting my, my wrist or something. So if the teaching of self-compassion is to be softer with oneself, to see that many other people are suffering in the world, to feel part of the common humanity. There's many techniques that Paul Gilbert and Christine Neff have been teaching, and, and those uh, who do that, which are extremely helpful for people who suffer in that way. And then, when they recognize in themselves that, yes, it would be so much better if I was happy, and then better to be reasonable about the way to achieve happiness, it's probably not the best way if I inflict wounds to myself, then they can also transport in others' minds and say, well, other people also want to be happy. So if I value my own wish for happiness, I should value the wish for happiness of others. If I'm concerned with my own well-being, I can be concerned with others' well-being, and then therefore compassion comes. So I think this is uh, for people who find very difficult to have benevolence to themselves, self-compassion is required. And the very good news is, uh, though boosting self-esteem and this has been overdone, especially in North America, leads to, nar- to the narcissistic epidemic uh, that Gene Twingy has been writing about. But cultivating self-compassion does not increase narcissistic tendencies, but rather a more, I would say, inclusive aspect of wishing your own happiness and then later other people's happiness. So that makes sense. And I think it's a very good tool for beginning the meditation on compassion, and from there, you can extend to others. But we should not just only do self-compassion. Yes. Now, you mentioned that perhaps people who engage in self-harm had had very difficult childhoods. Perhaps they were neglected in some way. And I've noticed that I think a lot of people are very, very hard on themselves, not necessarily even because they were neglected in their early upbringing, but just because of existing in an extremely competitive environment and an extremely competitive educational environment where, you know, you really have to be the best. And if you're not, then you're considered a failure. And there's a lot of self-criticism and self-condemnation that can come from that. And in reading some of your work on altruism, you mentioned that the transformation of our educational system, if we can emphasize cooperation over competitiveness in school, that this could be extremely helpful as part of this altruistic revolution. And I'm curious how you came to that notion about changing to cooperation in schools. Well, surprisingly enough, you know, in the turn of the 20th century, I mean, uh, the beginning of 20th century, uh, there was a strong movement in the, in the North America about cooperative learning. There was someone in Quincy, Massachusetts, I forgot the name, uh, who really started that in a big way, and people were coming from all um, uh, America to see how he was teaching cooperative learning. It was very successful, and it gives a very good academic result as well. But then, you know, in the 1930s, the more individualistic, narcissistic sort of approach sort of started to take over and then went back to competitive learning. But every study that has been done about schools that do practice cooperative learning have shown that it increased so much 
the emotional intelligence, the quality of human relationship among the children, with the teacher, so much less bullying. So just to, you know, typically to make it, you know, very simple the way it works. Instead of having exams where only, of course, a very few can be on the top, as by nature, you can't put every, everybody in the five first of the class. You don't have exams in terms of ranking them, but more like appreciating their efforts, like they do in Finland. There's no uh, grades, just people are rewarded for you know, working hard or studying, not because of they get first, second, or third grade. And then uh, they put uh, children by group of five or six, mixing uh, you know, uh, those who are more sort of brilliant in their study with those who have more difficulties. They've been mixing different social backgrounds, maybe different ethnic backgrounds, and then so that they, they, they learn the lesson together. And so the, the, those who are a little bit sort of more bright, they, they help the, the other ones, they're sort of mentoring, and they actually seem to be loving that. So it helps both, everyone. It creates a wonderful atmosphere, and it gives wonderful results. So it has been uh, you know, done to some extent, but somehow it has not gone yet sort of, you know, mainstream, but some countries like Finland and others are starting doing it. In England, now uh, in UK, 10% of schools uh, do what they call value-based education, which is not so much about competition, but every week the, the children, the student and the teacher uh, choose a value, like say honesty or compassion or, or whatever, fairness, and then they base, try to base all the curriculum around those values, referring to those, and it, it's extremely successful. It was evaluated in Australia on 60,000 children and showed it, it gives so much better quality of life at the school. And all the teachers are happy. They don't try to change schools. The kids are happy. The parents are happy. So somehow, you know, some of those things are known, and you wonder why they're not more widely uh, practice and it's true that the competitiveness is becomes the rule of <laughs> of modern education. But but uh, maybe it will change. I hope so. In the beginning of our conversation, Matthew, you were describing to us your two French writers that you collaborated with for In Search of Wisdom. And you mentioned that Christophe André is a psychiatrist, so he works with people who have various kinds of emotional suffering challenges. And Alexandre Jolin also spent 17 years in a home for the physically disabled. And I'm curious to know, because there's a section of the book, In Search of Wisdom, where you talk about suffering and you explore suffering from these three different perspectives, what you learned about the transformation of suffering from these two individuals who experience and work with it in a very different way than you do. Well, of course, they bring real life situations. You know, I'm sort of you know, one of my friends said that I'm the last person to write a book on happiness and suffering because I didn't really have any big tragedy in my life. And mostly wonderful things happened to me, <laughs> including meeting my spiritual teachers and doing wonderful things and having a very fulfilled life. So, although, of course, I witnessed suffering on again, you know, living in very 
destitute countries. That's why I started the humanitarian project, and I've seen misery, I've seen suffering, and all kinds of things. But somehow, you know, I had a happy life, let's say. But, you know, Alexander, he, he suffered so much, you know. Sometimes he used to go to see his parents, but then he had to go back to the institution. When he, when he, so he was put there when he was four years old. So each time it was like a, he was torn apart by having been abandoned on and again, you know, every 15 days. I have to go back to the institution. So the big suffering is in his life. But yet he overcome that to some extent. He had a wife and wonderful children, even his handicapped. And, and somehow... He put a lot of stress on joy. He said even in this institution, there was so much joy because of the deep friendship between the other inmates of the institution. So, you know, the idea of, of joy, of being together, facing the same difficulty and helping each other, that was something very interesting to me. And then Christophe André, of course, is more cautious because, you know, he's dealing with people who suffer so much, who have so much difficulty with their own mind. And so sometimes he was bringing us down to earth. You know, well, you, you can't say certain things to people who are in intense psychological suffering. You have to go step by step, so more slowly, more, you know, adapted to their capacity of digesting those. So, yes, you learn. And if your wish is to contribute to others' happiness and relieve suffering, so someone who brings not just intellectual ideas, but real-life situations based on their lifelong experience and is so precious so i learned so much with them yes even though you have a very happy life matthew i'm sure in your own experience with your own self not even just from the nonprofit work you do you encounter suffering at times do you have yes. a, a method or an approach when that happens well as i said i mean the unconditional compassion doing everything we can and then, then there's no regret. If you, if you, nobody can regret doing things that they are, is much beyond their capacity. So I do everything I can. I give 100% of my revenue to start with and spend so much, much of my time trying to run this organization, I mean, with my collaborators and friends. And so, you know, if I can't do something, then, you know, I'm at peace because I did what I could. So why should I just, uh, you know, worry for things which have nothing much I can do. So I do the best. I have nothing much to regret and reproach myself. Of course, I could have done possibly a little more, be more, more endeavor, start that earlier. I don't know. But somehow I'm at peace with that, and I do as much as I can. And so that's uh, the best I can do. <laughs> so why should I worry? No, Matthew, very good. One of the things that is a great joy for me and for Sounds True is that you're going to be a featured presenter at a four-day event that benefits the Eckhart Tolle Foundation. It's called Living a Life of Presence, and it's happening later this year, November 8th through the 11th in Southern California. Can you tell me a little bit about your meeting with Eckhart Tolle and how it is that you're inspired by him and his work? Well, you know, I met him, uh, first I read uh, the, uh, the Power of Now and the uh, New Earth. And I, when I, especially New Earth, when he says about his first experience, when he was so desperate, contemplating suicide, and then seeing no meaning at all, in a, in a, he was alone in a room with the light of the city coming through the window, and, 
And then suddenly he realized that everything was about grasping to the self. And then he fell almost in, in you know, passed out. And then when he came up, he, he, had a, he felt a kind of immense freedom towards the ego grasping. So I felt that sounds very, very genuine. And so <laughs> when I, had the, I was invited to a peace conference in Vancouver with the, with the Dalai Lama, there was five women Nobel Peace Prize, like Jody Williams and others. And, uh, and he was invited, and we did a panel together. So when I first met him, I thought, okay, now this is a person whose whole uh, sort of approach is about egolessness or making the ego transparent. So <laughs> he can't have a big ego, isn't it? So I was curious to see how he was as a person. And I found he was so sort of simple almost like, uh, you know, surprisingly genuine and some kind of naive, sort of almost naive, but in such a sweet way. So I really thought it, it was nice and great. And so we had a very good time during those few days. And I didn't have a chance to meet him again. So when he wrote uh, to come to this place, and although I'm not doing much conferences anymore because I'm 72 and I want to go back to my hermitage, but since I'm going also to the Contemplative Science Symposium, not far from there, just, uh, you know, a few days difference. Uh, it's talking about the Mind and Life Institute, and this one of my, is the idea of transmitting to the next generation what we did over the last 20 years. So I said, okay, I will come. So those two I could combine without taking too much time out of my hermitage. And so I'm very glad to go there <laughs> and then meet him again and hopefully, you know, say, exchange a few uh, whatever can be useful, a little talk there somewhere. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Now, you mentioned, Matthew, that right now you're with your mother in France and that she is also a monastic, that she is a Buddhist nun. Yeah. And I'm curious to know what you see as the role of monasticism in our contemporary world, the role of the monk and the nun. You know, so much now, as you know, people are saying, well, you know, I can just be secular and take the techniques from Buddhism that work for me. Oh, great. Compassion works. I'll do that. Wonderful. What's the role well, yes, of the monk and the so. nun? I yeah. agree with that. You know, monasticism, uh, my mother is a, is a nun, but you know, she doesn't live in a monastery. She did three years retreat. I think monastic life is quite difficult in the West a little bit because you have to be really a renunciant. You go from home to homelessness. So basically, it's not really the way of life. It functions there. So for me, uh, as my teacher said when I became a monk, no, I'm only one goal is to practice the Dharma. Imagine, I, had a, you know, I did about five years of solitary retreats on different occasions. If I had a, you know, a spouse and had children, you know, who I am to go for three years or somewhere, uh, you know, say, okay, bye-bye, I'll see you in, in a few years. <laughs> no, it's not fair. So you can't do that. And then there's so much want. I, mean, I know most couples, they spend 20 years. The wonderful work of bringing, uh, bringing children is fantastic. But it, it does take a lot of time. So me, I'm like a f- completely free. And if I get up, only that the footprint of my shoes somewhere, and then I can go, nothing not no sort of tie behind. I can disappear tomorrow. It doesn't harm anyone. So you, you imagine projects will go on. So this idea of complete freedom to dedicate yourself 
either to spiritual life or contemplative life or do retreat in a cave in the mountain or to do humanitarian projects. And I, I can just you know, go from one place to the other just completely free. So it's a kind of uh, dedication and also a kind of freedom that I, I felt in monastic life. Plus there are rules which, of course, are safeguards for not falling into things that obviously bring suffering, you know, obsession with possessions, with sensual pleasure, will become so much you know, a preoccupation for so many people. So there's nothing wrong fundamentally with possession and sensual pleasure, but when it becomes mixed so much with grasping and craving, then that brings suffering. So it's not that something is wrong by itself. It's wrong as long as there is grasping, suffering, clinging that comes in the picture. It brings suffering. That's a fact. So to be free from that, and that, that that's, that's a kind of... Uh, you know, source of, uh, anyway, that freedom allows you to dedicate more yourself to the spiritual path. Now, I've met many people, and some of them work here, it sounds true, with me, who have said, you know, I have a sense that in some of my past lives, maybe many of my past lives, I lived as a nun or a monk. But here I am, I'm in contemporary Western society, and, you know, actually, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it feels especially hard to be a parent because there's this tension. I really want to go off and do retreat. Sometimes it's hard to deal with the economics of the world. I wish I didn't have to. I wish I just could give all my money away and not even have to deal with it. And I'm wondering if you could address those people who feel that tension in their life. Well, first of all, I have not the slightest idea about my past life, and I don't care much about it. Uh, but for me, it is a freedom because you say, you know, dealing with the difficulty of economics. Yes, if you live in a world where you have a house, you have a car, you have a rent, you have this and that. You know, frankly, when I said the first, when I left Pasteur Institute, I went, I went first to India in 1967. Then I was doing the PhD in molecular biology for six years in Pasteur Institute. 1972, my boss let my salary go for six months. Not big salary. You know, I was just a beginning researcher. But with that money, I lived for 25 years in India, basically on $50 a month. Why? Because I was staying in a small hermitage, which was wonderful. So nice. You can't believe. But there was no running water, no electricity, no central heating at 6,000 feet. But so wonderful because I was near my teacher. I never felt any discomfort. I had a big bucket of water on my balcony. So then, if you choose that way of life, the economics <laughs> becomes very easy. Now, of course, if you have to be in the system, and of course not everyone can do that, and I don't advise people to do that, but for me it was easy. I decided to do that. It was with joy. So now, still, I mean, we can live in a more simple way possibly and do spend some time, you know, if those are meditators or something without becoming necessarily monastics, uh, carve some hours, an hour or so or two every day or in the weekend to seriously pursue a spiritual practice. I mean, we can do that while living modestly, but enough to meet ends at the end of the month and not pursue, you know, always more and more and more. And there's a Tibetan saying that if you know how to be content, you hold a treasury in the palm of your hand. So contentment uh, we should not be content with spiritual progress, always try to, to do more. But with material possession, yes, we, we have to learn to be very soon contented. And one of the mantras 
And like best is, I need nothing, I need nothing, I need nothing. Of course, it's not just fully depriving yourself, but basically knowing to be content with what is necessary for a reasonably healthy, good life, and then not always try for double, for triple, but rather try to increase your quality as a human being. And then that's uh, you can go on for, for, for a long time <laughs> trying to become a good human being. That's the best economics I know. Okay, just two final questions, Matthew. There's a chapter of In Search of Wisdom called Consistency, a question of fidelity. How would you define or describe a high-fidelity person? Well, something that is uh, same inside and outside, you know, more transparent, like the Dalai Lamas tell often that, you know, we should be completely the same inside and outside. And he's the living example of that. He's exactly the same with the lady who is cleaning the floor where the hotel he stays and with the heads of state. No difference. If he's a human being, he looks at that person with the same presence and kindness, and he's not a show for people who might look, look at him and say, oh, he's so good with humble people as well with the heads of state. He sees a human being is the same inside and outside. So that coherence and consistency, you know, the worst can happen if you show a beautiful... And we see that so often. People who teach virtue, and then you find out they do these terrible things behind the scenes. You know, and people who are supposed to represent the whole nation and to behave in terrible ways. So what kind of example? They don't walk the talk. And so then... You don't, how can you feel you know, deep satisfaction? I much better feel that I did nothing wrong and be accused of all kinds of terrible things, knowing that I have not done it because I'm at peace in, in, within myself, than being praised for my virtue and do terrible things when nobody sees. So I think the, this consistency and coherence is to be free from, men, from moral hypocrisy and all kinds of hypocrisy. And then you, you feel at peace because you are joyful, because there's no sort of hidden dark spot. doesn't mean that you are perfect, but at least you don't pretend. And then you act according to your inner deep feelings, not just showing off, showing off. Were there any big turning points in your life where you said, oh, I'm going to have to make a change. As I was reading, when you decided to start your nonprofit, that seemed like a turning point for you in a sense. Well, there were two main ones when I first met my spiritual teacher, my first teacher, Kang Yuri Moshe. You know, I was starting a scientific career, and when I met him, I said, hey, you know, I have met a lot of interesting people, you know, great philosophers, musicians, writers, artists, explorers, but I was always puzzled by the Precisely, the discrepancy between their particular genius at playing the piano or something and human qualities. You could find all kinds of distribution between wonderful people and terrible people among philosophers, musicians, gardeners, anything. But when I met my spiritual teacher, there was a perfect consistency with the teaching and the teacher. The messenger was the message. So that inspired me. That's what one turning point. I wanted to become like that person, not just know what they knew, or gain their particular skills, but on the human level. The second one, yes, is after 25 years in the East, living on hardly anything, 
when I did the first book with my father and I saw some funds coming my way, I didn't need anything of that. So I decided that now it's time to put compassion in action. So we started this organization called Karuna, which means compassion. And since there are quite a few Karuna in the, in the East, we added the name of our monastery, Sechen. And now we started with hardly, you know, very small projects, a clinic in Nepal, one in Tibet, and now almost nearly 20 years. Today we are helping 300,000 people in India, northern India, Nepal, and Tibet in the field of education, health, and social services. So it's wonderful. We have a wonderful team. There are about 200 people working in the, in the, in the field programs. And we have the volunteers, where people employ now for Karuna. And it's a great joy to see that. It's like a family. We don't have much, uh, you know, like sometimes they're always in uh, difficulties within NGOs. But because we also have this ideal to transform ourselves to better serve others. And therefore, I think it's a great harmony within our organization. And I hope it will survive me in a big way and continue. And so that's my hope. And then finally, this is a little bit odd, Matthew. We'll see how this rolls. But I'm wondering, would you be able to conclude our conversation with some kind of blessing for all of our, <laughs> all of our listeners about the altruistic revolution? Well, it's not a blessing because you know, I remember the Dalai Lama when he started talking. He said, you know, if you came here thinking Dalai Lama has some kind of power, please. You, you came for the wrong reason. If I had some power, I'd start healing my own knee, he says. So forget about blessing. But I would say that if you genuinely identify within yourself the potential we have for goodness, and we do have it, and to bring it at the surface, to actualize it, to make it become fully bloomed, that's the very best thing you can do for others and for yourself. So it's the twofold accomplishment of others and your own good, the win-win situation, go for it. They are to be altruistic. That's the best thing we can do in life, both for others and for oneself. So that's my heart advice. I've been speaking with Matthew Ricard. Thank you so, so, so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. He's the author of the new book, What Sounds True, called In Search of Wisdom a monk, a philosopher, and a psychiatrist on what matters most, a book based on dialogues that he had with Christophe André and Alexandre Jolien. He's also the author of the book Altruism, The Power of Compassion to Change Yourself and the World, and a book on happiness, a guide to developing life's most important skill. He'll also be a featured presenter at Living a Life of Presence, which is a four-day event coming up November 8th through the 11th in Huntington Beach, California, to benefit the Eckhart Tolle Foundation. Thanks, everyone, for listening and being part of the altruistic revolution. Let's go for it. SoundsTrue.com, waking up the world. <laughs>